Hi, can I please speak to Gravel 2020 Senior Campaign Staff, Jonathan Sir and Alex Chang? This is John. Hey, guys. Hey, Alex. John, this is Andre Goulet with both The Korea File and Unpacking the News Podcasts, attempting an ambitious dual cast of a Korean history and current affairs show and a Canadian left politics podcast to discuss the radical left presidential campaign of former Alaska senator and iconoclastic American politician Mike Gravel. Uh, hey guys, how you doing? We are doing amazing. It's really sunny in New York City right now. This approach of war on drugs has not succeeded. We've spent billions of dollars on it. And we fill up our prisons to the point where we're the embarrassment of the world. We're supposed to be a democracy. We've got more people in prison, 2.3 million people in prison. We spend more as a nation on defense than all the rest of the world put together. This whole nation should be a sanctuary for the world. I'm ashamed as an American to be building a fence on our southern border. That's not the America that I fought for. Why do they hate us so in so many places around the world? Because we kill so many people wanting And we can get off of gasoline in five years, and we can get off of carbon in 10 years. All we gotta do is want to do it. The military-industrial complex not only controls our government, lock, stock, and barrel, but they control our culture. Folks, that clip you heard is from the Mike Gravel 2020 campaign, The Rock 2.0, a sequel to Gravel's weird, provocative 2008 ad, The Rock, which went viral the last time he ran for president of the United States 10 years ago. We are 18 months out from the Milwaukee Democratic Convention that's coming up in July 2020, where the Democrats will choose their candidate to go up against Donald Trump in the November 2020 election. Mike Gravel might be that candidate. A Gravel exploratory committee filed paperwork with the Federal Election Commission in mid-March. So this is, what, like two months into this campaign? Yeah, um, it's we we officially started taking donations like around March 20th, so... We're hitting about like the two two month official mark where we are have been tracking our goals. Well, and you guys have really got a lot of traction online, especially in social media, because it's interesting. It's not really Gravel tweeting himself or propelling this insurgent, largely social media driven campaign forward. The caustic style, the affinity for memes. You guys are university students is that right so so me and alex are actually we've we're industry professionals um in our respective trades um alex does paid social at his job and i do a visual i'm a visual designer at my ad agency and so the energies of the gravel campaign are um from these three teenagers two of them are columbia students and one of them is a high school student who's going to oxford next year and really the energy of these three teenagers is captured the energy of over 50 full-time volunteers. But Alex, do you want to, do you want to weigh in too? Yeah, it's the energy of these, these teenagers that really, I think, compels a lot of us to uh, join in. And part of the, the success of what we see on the internet um, definitely has to do kind of out of necessity because that's really largely kind of the only avenue we have because our deal with the senator is that he doesn't have to travel. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, what's the best way to get him to everyone's face besides, you know, the internet, right? So... Um, look, and the, these teenagers are funny, they're smart, they're sharp, um, and, you know, obviously you've seen the Twitter account, it's, 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 it's cutting. It's a work all, of art. 
Yeah, it just cuts <laughs> through all the bullshit. Like that's that's what this campaign's about. Yeah, and it's and it's 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 I mean it's really idea driven and policy driven uh, from the left in a way that we so rarely see in American politics. And I want to explore the the podcast origins of the campaign, the the Chapo origins. So on March 11th, 2019, a discussion about Gravel came up on the 323rd episode of the leftist comedy podcast Chapo Trap House. The Unsullied is the title of that episode, where one of the hosts, Felix Biederman, would claim, Mike Gravel is the only politician I ever felt represented me. Three days later, David Oakes, a high school senior, and Henry Williams, a college freshman at Columbia, both avid listeners of the show, persuaded the former senator to run for president through a phone call. So that, that's the origin story courtesy of Wikipedia. Is it accurate? Yeah, the first thing the senator said was, do you know how old I am? Um, as he <laughs> often, often, often says. Um, and he is, well, he just turned 89. Um, Happy birthday. And, yes, and he, if he served office, he would be, what, the first 90 plus 90, yeah. in office. But yeah, I mean, th- that happened. And then, you know, David and Henry, uh, they just came back um, with just, a strong enough conviction to convince the senator to be like, yeah, I'm on board. Um, but, you know, we just have to make sure that because of his age, he doesn't, you know, get pushed into yeah. one way or the other. I think ahead, the John. part of the story that a lot of people miss is that Senator Gravel was actually much more hesitant at first to let the campaign move forward. But as he saw the teams at work and seeing what they were saying and seeing that they were really aligned in message and in spirit, um, and what they were doing was, wasn't anything different than what he had been doing his entire 40-year storied career. Um, mm. But what, what the teams were doing were really reorienting his message for a new audience and doing it in a way that he, as a 89-year-old, wouldn't quite be able to understand, like the nuances of the Internet and social media and kind of like the Internet subcultures that surround that. And yeah, don't get mm-hmm. that wrong either, because um, the senator is very hands-on too. I mean, we push each other um, often in terms of how we're going to approach our platform. His his wife is involved um, as well, and she's like this very like staunch, almost radical voice, and she's really keeping us in check as well. Um, mm-hmm. This is just an entirely collaborative effort with just kind of people who know um, that there are problems and we're not having the right conversations. Yeah, and I think I think it kind of represents the bigger issue that we have on the left in politics is that we've been so focused on saying that our position is right and yours is wrong, but not really moving forward and progressing the conversation or the discourse surrounding those issues. Um, mm-hmm. And what that requires is for people to listen and to work together and to build coalition around um, things that they can find solidarity in. Yeah, the senator has veto power over everything we tweet too. So you know, so every, monitoring every, it all. we try to run everything we can by him. So, um, you know, like he definitely has the part, but obviously we um, have had the team take up some you know, of that. Um, yeah, we're we're really strong, progressive voices. We're not afraid. Like we like Liz Warren in the campaign, but we're not afraid to call people out. Like um, we're going to do the same thing for Bernie because he doesn't necessarily have the best uh, foreign policy. I mean, like the, the senator is an outspoken. Um, I've been outspoken about his support of kind of Tulsi Gabbard's um, foreign policy positions. Um, yeah, I mean, like, that kind of stuff is why we're here. We're here to make sure that we're having the right conversations, that we're checking people when they say dangerous things, such as, you know, the implication that um, sustainable uh, policies for it is to amplify the military. That's insane. 
uh, those two are entirely incompatible. We have to point those things out because no one else is. And so, it, like, right now, the polling is actually consistently pretty good for the Gravel campaign. They're outpolling candidates like Hickenlooper uh, and even leading Democrats like Cory Booker. Uh, and yet, the, the Gravel campaign is still excluded from the candidate lists. Explain to international listeners, what does that mean? to be excluded? So if you look at the poll results, it, it might look initially like 1%. What are they, what are they really doing? Um, but when you kind of take the, when you kind of take a perspective of how much money is being used by these campaigns, you look at Jill Abrams campaign and she's hired these superstar New York city creative agencies to craft her campaign into this huge brand moment. Um, and we've outpolled her pretty much on every poll that we've been included on um, simultaneously with her. Um, and you start to look at where the energies of normal average Americans that are being pulled lie, and they're not, they're not, they're no longer with these superstar politicians who have all the right words and all the right things to say. Um, but the energies are starting to shift more towards, um, these candidates who are supported primarily by small, small donor amounts, um, by small inter individual contributions made by individuals who truly believe in their ideas and want to see the ideas of these campaigns move forward, not um, the personality of the campaign. And so what we're seeing in American politics is a huge shift from this kind of celebration of the cult of politics into this bigger picture of does this person who is going to be taking a seat in the highest seat of the land, do they represent the ideas that I truly believe in as an American? And that's not only it either. It's that we have ideas and that we are um, actually presenting these ideas, these issues, because I think even 2016, if you look at 2016, um, not to rehash that election over and over again, but you, you see that um, people actually are driven by issues. Like if you look at anyone what Donald Trump's policies were, you, they would be able to tell you the wall. Um, the, the Muslim ban, like these are horrific and despicable policies, but they're issues and policies nonetheless that are tangible. If you told me what Bernie was about, you'd say Medicare for all, you'd say free college. But when you, when you talk about Hillary Clinton, what, what, what can you latch onto there? Like what is she presenting to you as an issue? And voters, you know, do tend to like things that are tangible and we're presenting real things. We want to end war. That's what we want to do. We want to end our U.S. imperialist policy across the world. And that, that's our main issue that we have. Um, but we're also su supporting that with the other issues that are very tangible and easy to reach. You know, Green New Deal, um, you know, uh, criminal justice reform, ending the war on drugs. You know, that, that's all part of things that voters actually can think about. But the past few decades of politics has all been about presenting personalities as the substitute. And I think people are now becoming savvy enough to realize that. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. And the MikeGravel.org, uh, the, the home of the uh, Gravel 2020 campaign, has a rising uh, dollar figure of what is being spent on war. And it says, what war? What's it good for? Five trillion, four hundred fifty-three billion, one hundred twenty million, and a constantly rising $1,000 amount spent on regime change wars since 2001, enough to cover the full cost of tuition for every person who wants to enroll in community college in the United States. Uh, Anti-imperialism is not something that's been at the forefront of American politics in generations. I mean, since World War II, is, is that right? Yeah, and it, it, for us, the reason why we joined this campaign is, for, for me personally, my story is that I read, I read one of these teens' tweets, and I was like, you know, it was something about... It was about Kamala Harris 
So yeah, what what really what really drew me initially into the campaign was I read this tweet um, from the teens or, uh, around mid March um, that said all arguments against the Microvel candidacy are negated by looking at the kill counts of other candidates. And then a reporter from a local news station is in the replies and asks, "Can you please define quote kill count?" And the teens reply, "Number of people they've ki- killed." And, like, you read it, and it's shocking. It's hilarious. But then that shock and hilarity kind of draws you in to look at what their statement is actually representing and, you know, what what has been missing from American political discourse for since World War II has been what we've been doing in other countries to perpetuate war and how we've somehow – come to a point where we've relabeled this um, idea of regime change and um, supplanting democracy into, we we basically rebranded the idea of invading other countries into these palatable ideas of democracy and giving other countries um, a new chance at a new regime. This is funny that you mentioned the 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 money the budget counter that's on your homepage because yeah. I think I'm about to hit up our web developer and say, hey, we should put a carbon emissions counter too for that. Um, but I think ultimately, yeah, I think John's kind of alluding to this in the sense that American foreign policy has never been about presenting ourselves as partners to anyone. It's always been about us imposing ourselves upon other people, and that's just plain out imperialism. That's you know, it's colonial ideology, um, and we we've so thoroughly convinced ourselves that we're better that we don't even question that we're better than other people or think that we're better or present ourselves as better um with without you know go, going going to looking at foreign policy and thinking about people as why how are we going to work together instead of how are we going to impose american ideals on every other nation in the world yeah and so what what american politics has become is um to both it's become bi- it's become partisan politics, um, Democrats and Republicans. But between these two parties, they've come into agreement to say that America is better than every other country, and that we have the right to tell other countries how to govern themselves, um, because we obviously have a very quote unquote functioning democracy in our own country. And and so what what the Gravel campaign is really doing in in the sphere that no one really else no one else really is is pointing out the blatant hypocrisies that we kind of push forward every day in our daily rhetoric and we see it in figures like Elizabeth Warren, who's supposed to be a progressive champion of progressive values. And um, she's supporting green military, (laughs) retrofitting the military with green technology and um, perpetuating that war machine that continues to contribute profits for blood. Something just doesn't sit right, right in that, in that kind of dimension of, wanting to be for people and at the same time saying that the lives of other people in other countries are not worth it. Yeah, I think I saw a tweet that was sums up this pretty well, and it was that Republicans say climate change isn't real, and Democrats say we are, our tanks are going to be solar-powered. <laughs> and I think that kind of just sums up exactly like what the problem is. I hate to shit-talk the states because, I mean, I have so many American friends, and, and my, my life has been uh, integrated into the states at various parts of my life, and I lived in off and on in Michigan for nine years. And my experience there, even though I was in Ann Arbor, which is like, you know, the kingdom, the fortress of American liberalism <laughs> in the Midwest, uh, was the insularity that was just such a major part of how people see themselves and see the world like this 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 inability to really um 
look outside the borders or even to empathize with other countries. And I mean, that does speak to the imperialist project, the accidental imperialist project. Not really accidental, but you know what I mean. I want to get to talking about Korea uh, because this is going to be featured on the Korea podcast and sort of the the relationship with American foreign policy in that country. But first, a little bit more about Gravel. So in his time as a senator, he was the senator for Alaska, which is, you know, like... Uh, continentally detached from from the greater from the rest of the country, the rest of the United States, this would have allowed him to kind of like um, create this iconoclastic way of engaging with politics. Uh, and he's particularly famous for having introduced the Pentagon Papers into the congressional record. So, can you tell listeners what were the Pentagon Papers? What, what was the origins of him getting his hands on those? And and what does it mean to introduce that sort of uh, that sort of document into the con- uh, the record of the Congress of the United States? Um, so basically, what the Pentagon Papers were, um, were well, it was a report written by Daniel Ellis- Ellisberg, um, who was a senior official at the Pentagon at the time, um, detailing um, how American lives are being lost in the war, um, essentially for no good cause and no good reason, um, and that this war had continued. And the Viet- this is the Vietnam War, yeah. The Vietnam War had been going for about three or four years at the time, and people were really, the public was really starting to get frustrated with um, the constant um, deflection of the media and the deflection of government officials to answer straight questions about what really was going on in Vietnam um, with the soldiers and um, why they were dying in such great numbers to for this cause that had never been um, truly out, um, truly detailed um, to the public. And so um, what Mike Ravel did is he used a series of congressional and procedural loopholes to um, read the Pentagon Papers into the record. Um, this is actually with, during a filibuster of the draft, too. So, I mean, it, I mean, it's, it's just kind of a proof point that Mike Gravel has always been sticking to his guns or laughing. Sorry, the draft being the American draft, drafting people into the military involuntarily, and a filibuster being when you just keep talking so that uh, procedural stuff cannot continue until the person finishes. So he basically went up there and read from this document, which was sort of like, uh, I don't know, like shining a light into the dark shadows of, of the American self. This is a document that was obviously like released to the New York Times and like had been tried to halt it. Um, and, you know, I think the importance here is that Mike Gravel risked a lot to, to get this onto the congressional record. Obviously, you know, you talk about him being an iconoclast from being from Alaska, being kind of detached from the U.S., but I really think it's just the fact that he was serving in the Nixon administration and he knows when bullshit. Well, and, and he was provided the papers via Chomsky and Howard Zinn. Is that right? I, I don't know. I actually don't know the history. Behind. We should ask him. Yeah. <laughs> The really iconic part of Mike Gravel's career is that although this was kind of his big moment that he's known for, his his politics ever since then have continued to evolve and expand on that same idea of stopping war and stopping the war, um, stopping wars in our foreign policy and stopping wars domestically and all these um, economic and social issues that we see basically plaguing our country today as well. And even making a space for those kinds of conversations is so important because that just, you know, doesn't exist. So when he ran in 2008, 10 years ago, uh, he actually was in the debates and he had the opportunity to kind of speak some of these truths on on major network television and to get ideas out there that usually are only read about in like, um, I don't know, like, like uh, uh, 
uh, the latest the latest edition out of Verso Books or something. So so it's it's a really cool and positive thing that this is now uh, you know finding its way into the discourse again. One more thing I want to touch on is like you know Bernie uh, Bernie Sanders when he basically appeared on the scene fully you know fully conceived in in 2016 it's not like we hadn't heard of him before because you know like i liked watching him on bill maher's terrible program or whatever but that he wasn't a main you know social socialism there was no space for that in the discourse bernie broke that mold and now is you know a major political figure in the united states uh making space for conversations about socialism and so that's amazing there's a million people volunteering for his campaign uh, across the country and you know bernie's got a lot of great ideas so like to, to your mind though gravel brings a, a more a more a rigid anti-imperialist perspective on, on american foreign policy is is that right i mean yeah wow. so so the problem that we the problem that's really perpetuated by American politics is that because it's so partisan, there's no room for really um, the front runner of these ideas to lose any ground. Um, if he wants to be electable against Trump. And so what happens to these front runner candidates who have all these great ideas is that they end up having to water down their politics in order to appeal to a greater um, pool of voters. And that's, that's really the tragedy of partisan politics is that you, with, when given only two choices and with the country split directly in half, it's, it's, hard to find, it's hard to push these bigger policies and to continue to win these people. Um, that's, what, that's what the theory of electability says. But uh, we believe that, at, we as a campaign believe, and what Senator believes is that these ideas um, specifically about the military-industrial complex and stopping um, our horrendous foreign policy, these ideas have, have to be our ground zero. Um, they have to be our threshold. Um, and if we aren't willing to stand up against our own imperialism, um, that's leading our country into a disastrous future. And um, any moment that we don't speak up on our, our imperialist foreign policy, that's another moment that Americans get to say that that Americans get to claim um, their right over other countries. Trying to get at a little bit what the difference is between our campaign and like what Bernie's trying to achieve, and I think ultimately um, the stakes are kind of a bit lower for us, and that's good because we're not afraid to lose. So we're not afraid to say um, things that you know um, other progressive candidates who are actually you know who who are like really further ahead right now. Um, aren't willing to say. Um, ultimately, we want to be kind of the watchdog, the progressive watchdog of the entire party right now. Make sure everyone adopts the necessary things to call yourself a democratic party. Well, and especially today when, you know, like the American presence in the world was kind of, I mean, in spite of the the gross excesses and massive killings, like it, it did create a sort of stability just in contrast to today when we see constant chaos and and like it's really dramatic like how how unhinged things are when the biggest uh, player in geopolitics is completely unpredictable and and just so to my mind like broken 
so so yeah so a self-awareness about imperialism from the american left is an absolute necessity moving forward and and you're right like that that ties into the senator's perspectives on uh the u.s government and human rights abuses his opposition to israeli apartheid uh what other what other major things are, are part of his his foreign policy uh his foreign policy perspective well in a way all of our foreign policy pursuits are kind of like to stop doing that or stop being out there so much, you know, in a way. <laughs> it's know? like, what, like what our foreign policy is to stop being foreign policy almost. <laughs> what, what Senator Gravel really did for us as young, young adults is open, er, he really opened my, he opened my eyes to see the bigger picture of U.S. foreign policy here, where it's not just specific issues like Iran. It's not just specific issues like North Korea. It's not just specific issues like Venezuela. But all of these things share a common connection through our military empire, basically. And what the U.S. has done is created an empire. And so we, we as a campaign, have put out specific policies on um, Israel, on Saudi Arabia, um, and the Korean Peninsula, because we believe that these um, three geopolitical regions are um, most most detrimentally affected by our foreign policy and our support of basically money. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, that's why we've specified those three on the policy page. But what, what the campaign really represents is this whole overarching picture of American foreign policy and seeing not to not see our supplanting of military bases and establishment of military presence as kind of a procedural or tactical move, but it's in essence a colonial move to, overtake land with power yeah and i'll say this like in inside the campaign this this has probably been said a lot but sanctions are murder like we're murdering children through the sanctions that we're um implementing across the these um foreign entities um and you know to, to say that we're not controlling or affecting these is just ridiculous. With, with the time we have left, let, let's uh, let's pivot to talking about Korea because you guys had reached out uh, to the Korea File podcast and and uh, we're looking to explore some of the senators' uh, sort of the, the way we could connect his campaign with uh, Korean politics and culture and various conflicts that it has with Western politics. So, so tell me a little bit about that and tell me a little bit about your guys' own background with Korea. Yeah, I mean, okay. I think the reason this appealed to us a lot was because John and I are both Korean Americans. And so the the reason why, as a Korean American, we relate to this campaign so much is that um, what 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 being Korean American is, is is essentially an identity crisis. It's a lifelong identity crisis where you don't know if you're Korean and you don't know if you're American, and you're not sure where the two cultures meet in between. Um, but then um, taking taking in the perspective of American foreign policy and um, the U.S. relation to South Korea and how culture has been influenced by the U.S. Um, through their military presence and through the presence of our government inside um, Korean governance, um, you kind of start to see why it's such an identity crisis. It, it's it's naturally meant to come at odds with each other, this idea of Korean and American culture. And so um, what what this critical perspective of looking through the lens of the military-industrial complex does is kind of help untangle um, where where the U.S. Uh, really came into Korean culture and started implementing U.S. cultural values 
through economic policy and through governance and through the promotion of certain governmental figures and um, forms of governmental organization. Yeah, I mean, my sense of Han is very strong, right? <laughs> so for listeners, Han is this concept of like an emotional, but like deeper than that, sort of like almost physical, emotional connection to... Yeah, I mean, yeah. kind of. There's more of a like anger. I, 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 think the, I think the real meta definition of Han is that you can never really understand it unless you're Korean. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah. And in a way, it's kind of ethno-nationalist, but but Han, as, as, as a feature of Korean culture, I think is very important to recognize and to see. And what, what, I, think, what I think Korean Americans want is they're looking, forward to, they're looking forward for a path to forge an identity that's as rich in culture and tradition as it is in their economic wealth, as we see in a lot of Korean Americans these days live in um, the upper middle class of society, and they've really established themselves as leaders in technology and in education and in um, politics and all these different spheres. And um, what what happens with Korean American identity is that there's this disconnect between the Han that we feel from being Korean and this this wellness that we're experiencing from American culture and this um, kind of um, affluence that we've derived from the American side of our existence. And sorry, just 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 to interject, just interject for a second. So there's this, there's a real contradiction in that sense of Han because it can uh, you can you can feel like as Americans that there is all this yeah like opulence and like uh, access to <clears throat> you know big big grocery stores or whatever. But then the 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 notion of like recent Korean history is that of a completely divided, shattered country where, where there's this trauma that is completely unresolved. Korea has constantly been bombarded by foreign po like powers on each side, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think that's a large sense of where that comes from. But I, I totally agree with John on uh, the ideas of Korean American identity and how it's you know, kind of at odds with each other. But for me, um, almost like my Koreanness is is a parallel to what we're seeing with how America has affected Korea. Like it, it, my, my, my feeling of my identity of a Korean man is subservient to that of the American culture that are at B. You know, I think we're starting yeah. to see a little bit more of this identity forged as cultural exports come out of Korea, but all of those are even you know highly, 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 highly manufactured by American um, mm -hmm. imperialists. Uh, and ideas, right? Like K-pop. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I, although BTS does want teenagers to feel good about themselves, which is kind of a positive thing. Well, and and, and so just but just to speak to really quickly, like yeah, I mean to me the the. the National division is sort of like the front of mind thing, but yeah, then of course we're talking about decades of Japanese occupation before that, and like it's it's a century of trauma which which leads to this feeling of Han, and then this constant presence uh, in contemporary South Korea of uh, you know tens of thousands of American troops just kind of hanging out in the country and a very very small country. This isn't even the same thing as like Germany, where uh, you know where you know the bases are like more isolated, and then of course with the neighbor to the north, there's been this constant threat of uh, conflict which is often egged on by the United States. It's not only North Korea as like a bad actor in these sort of scenarios. So yeah, all of this, I can see how it ties into like uh, supporting uh, an anti-imperialist campaign like that of Mike Gravel. Well, it's like, so the thing, the thing about this, like seeing how, how much the U.S. military has influenced Korean culture and 
brought Korea to where it is today, it's there's there's a sort of temptation to look on the project of the U.S. military in South Korea as a sort of success story. But then but then you have to step back and realize that it, that it, you look at the protests that happened in 2017, and this isn't what the Korean people wanted, and this this governance and this form of culture that was imposed on the people. Um, by 2017, they had had enough, and you can see it on the streets. Like um, the Korean people didn't want what the U.S. had been pushing forward. And for listeners who weren't who weren't aware of what's going on, there was basically like a people-powered uh, quiet quiet revolution, pretty noisy. It was on the streets, but it was nonviolent. And the president of the country uh, basically left the Blue House, the presidential residence. Uh, she's now in jail for her, you know, really corrupt for the actions of her regime. So yeah, 2017 was a big change. And so and so you see like these big issues and. They, they feel very daunting and it's almost depressing to think about how much like my identity has been formed by the imperial powers of this other half of my identity. And it's kind of this constant tension that makes people um, feel very strongly about issues um, that affect their identity. Um, but what we've kind of realized as a campaign is that if, if you – what we've done as a campaign is kind of maintain this postmodernist distance to reality where we feel like the only way that you can really engage with these issues that are so big and so vast is to start to tackle the little, the specific details of these issues and to do it in a way that can connect my life to these issues. And so for me, for me, the way that I started thinking about these things is I wonder, I Last year, I spent the I spent about a month in Korea, um, and I was walking around um, the Yongsan base um, just to take the a American look. American military base in the center of the city, yeah, in the center of Seoul. Um, so I was looking around and just thinking to myself, and you wonder how something so big and with so much influence on the local community and on the local businesses and on the people that live um, surrounding the base, um, you start to wonder how and why that still continues to exist to this day. Um, yeah, when Korea the... hasn't been engaged, actively engaged in war um, with anyone other than the opponent that the U.S. has created, essentially. Right. I mean, I think what you were saying, John, is like very true about the Korean people, but it's, 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 like, it, it's one of those things that is universal, even to the American people. When I get out of Penn Station every morning to go to work, I see... Uh, dogs and people in bulletproof vests with M4s. You know, it, it it affects everyday life. Like we see war on a daily basis, despite the fact that there's no one we're at war with. You know, mm. I mean that's that's basically my thoughts on the entire matter. It's just that we we have created um a system where it's normalized and it's mm. the default, and it is um impossible to have a conversation. Um, because of that. Yeah, I mean, this, this this American psychology of constantly being under threat and constantly being under potential attack, this sort of constant garrison state, um, has really become like the norm. Fear using proto-fascist tactics to create ultranationalism and right-wing fascism. For me, I what what I've really gleaned from this campaign and working on this campaign is that revolution isn't going to look like what it did even. 10 years ago, um, the internet has changed so much of how we connect with our lives and how we connect with our tradition and our cultures and the histories that create us as individuals. And so 
for me, I feel like the next revolution in America and in the West in general and in the world is going to be people reading something like a tweet and diving into the facts of that tweet because all of that information is available um, right at right at our fingertips. And so now we have to engage in this difficult project of kind of sorting out all the voices that we get bombarded with every day through the media, through um, through social media, through um, our friends, and through what, through whatever means that we communicate with the outside world, we're going to have to get to a place where we start to sort out these ideas and question them and challenge them and get to a point where we're able to create a more comprehensive picture of who I am as a Korean American, who this country is, uh, who we are in this country as Americans, and who we are as Koreans. And um, I think it's going to take a lot of work, but um, hopefully this campaign is going to get us started. Yeah, I think John's about to say this, um, but if you're American, please donate $1 at microvel.org. Um, you know, we need 65,000 people to make sure that we're having the right conversations at the debate, and we would appreciate all of your help. And you guys are at 30,000 right now, is that right? Or yeah. Around that, yeah. Jonathan Sir and Alex Chang are senior campaign staff with the Gravel 2020 presidential campaign. Guys, thanks a lot for speaking with me today. This was really cool. Thanks for having us. Yeah, I really enjoyed talking about it. We really appreciate having us on. You've been listening to episode 84 of The Korea File. Follow me on Twitter at Andre Margulay. This podcast was co-produced with Ricochet's Unpacking the News, my other show. The Korea File is also hosted and produced on a 100% volunteer basis and receives no institutional or commercial funding. It's supported by listeners like you. So just a couple of dollars a month goes a long way towards keeping the show on the air. If you can afford to support this podcast and to help subsidize it for listeners who can't, go to patreon.com slash thekoreafile to become a monthly patron. Thanks. Music on this episode is courtesy of Creative Commons. I'll be back in a month with a new episode. Until then, I'm Andre Goulet. Thanks for listening. <laughs>